This is Richie Wexler of Vintage Annals Archive Outsider Podcast. I'm really excited to be talking today with uh, Brian Box Brown. Um, Brian Box Brown is a uh, graphic artist. He's written some amazing books. I own all of them. Uh, one of the biggest ones he's had was Andrea Giant, Life and Legend. He wrote a book called Child Star. He just put out a book called He Man Effect. He did um, the drawings for a book called Accidental Czar, Life and Times of Vladimir Putin with Andrew Weiss last year. Um, Cannabis Legalization of Weed in America. Uh, Is This Guy for Real? Unbelievable Andy Kaufman. Um, I I, I got to know Brian through his wife, Sarah, through doing a theater. I've known Sarah for a long time doing theater, but I've gotten friendly with Brian, and I think he's really... Just a stand-up human being, um, super smart. Uh, he, you know, in terms of the work I'm doing at Vintage Annals Archive, he's the best of it because he's, you can tell he's such a good biographer. He's such a good researcher. Um, when he does, if you look at his drawings, he references a lot of like he does enough research to reference actual items. So like he's he's really perfect for us. Um, but this is a little more informal. Again, I've gotten to know Brian over the years through Sarah. We've gotten friendly. Um, and so this is more of like what I call conversation with friends. It's a little more, you know, it's it's a little more all over the place. Uh, just kind of shooting the shit with someone I've known well who has similar interests. And again, I think Brian, I love Brian. Brian's amazing. Please check out his work. I want to highlight some of uh, Box's work. Um, Box currently does a, a, a comic online, uh, Illegalization Nation. Exposes legal and ethical issues around legalization. Very well done. It's a weekly comic. Um, and... Brian just put out a book. We did have a we did have a talk with him and Perry Shell um, that we put up. It was a live recording of the two of them talking about Brian's book. I'm just going to read a little blurb about his recent book. It's really amazing. Um, again, Brian is an excellent researcher, excellent documentarian, and also is really good at finding archival images to then bring into his work. And again, like for for my you know, as a, I'd be a big fan of Brian's if I didn't know him. Uh, but he really, some he's really the best. Anyway, um, so Brian, Brian Box Brown brings history and culture to life through his comics. In his new graphic novel, he unravels how marketing that targeted children in the 80s has shaped adults in the present. Powered by the advent of television and supercharged by the deregulation era of the 80s, media companies and toy manufacturers joined forces to dominate the psyches of American children. But what are the consequences when a developing brain is saturated with the same kind of marketing bombardment found in the Red Scare propaganda? Uh, His book, He Manifests, shows how corporate manipulation brought muscular, accessory-stuffed action figures to dizzying heights in the 80s and beyond, bringing beloved brands like He-Man, Transformers, My Little Pony, and Mickey Mouse himself into the spotlight. This graphic history exposes a world with no rules and no concern for results beyond profit. Brian... Is very smart. Brian's very political. Brian, in a lot of Brian's work, there's a lot of activism in there. And again, stand up, fella. Enjoy. This is, a, again, a more of an informal conversation with friends. I don't, <laughs> we did this a long time ago, and it's just, it's going to go in different places. Uh, I think we're both a little ADD, so it'll, it'll be enjoyable, but it's, it was never meant to be um, necessarily chronological or, or a standard interview. Either way, enjoy. And check out the other episodes. Again, we have him with Perry Shaw talking about this book. 
Uh, Perry's another amazing artist. Check out his work. And then we have him. Um, he co-hosted an episode I did about the about weed and the underground press syndicate uh, that came out uh, a few months ago, um, which is really enjoyable. So please take care. Uh, see you next week. start get into the i'm gonna call it the cot the pot comic but that's not really what it's called it's called legalization nation you know i got arrested for for possession when i was a teenager which was like scary when i was a kid you know i had a pretty big impact on my social life and stuff from when i was in high school and you know i had to go to court and i I had to go to probation and I had to get piss tested and all this stuff. And so, you know, and I've been a cannabis enthusiast my whole life probably. And so I've been like thinking, you know, following legalization as it, as it's been happening, like the whole time, you know, it was always something that was interesting to me. I remember like when, like the first medical weed law passed, actually the same year I got arrested, 1996 was the same year that the first medical cannabis law passed in in the United States. It was also the same year that the Clinton administration decided to go hard on drugs and they like doubled the amount of arrests for cannabis in the same year. So that same year in 1996 that I got arrested was also like the first year of legalization. I remember being reading about that as a teenager and being like, what the fuck dude? Like it's legal. And like, I remember talking to people even, uh, even back then, like my, my, my friend's like brother lived in California and she was like, yeah, my brother like got caught smoking a joint on the beach and he, he just like got a ticket. And I was just like, what? And I was, cause I had just been through so much. Like it was like, honestly, like not that it wasn't that bad. Like thinking back on it, it was that bad at the time. For me, like, I didn't know what, I had never experienced anything like that, but it wasn't that big of a deal. But in the context of doing something you would do as a teen that most teens are doing, it seems like a big re- a big reaction. It was. I mean, it's, like, made to scare you, you know? You have to, like, you face the judge. <clears throat> so I was, like, following the whole thing go down. All the stuff happened. You know, I remember, like, maybe, like, mid-2000s hearing people talk about the medical program in California and basically realizing that, like, it was just legal weed. Like at some point it like went from being like something um, not completely widespread that was somewhat difficult to obtain to becoming like de facto legalized weed. Because like, you know, you could go get a medical card for like almost anything for like almost no money. There was a ton. The the laws, that original law was kind of like the best law. Uh, because it it allowed for like everybody to be involved there was all kinds of things you could do like a lot of it was like patient collectives so like you know um, it wasn't like a store it was like you know 20 patients like one of those old school like buyer clubs yeah 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 exactly that's like exactly uh where that came where the it came from the same like it's it's crazy that you're you, you know it's crazy that, that like both those 
communities need something like that. It, just, it doesn't make it's any sense. It's kind of like legalized weed kind of like came from the AIDS movement in like the late 80s and early 90s. Interesting. Because like they're very closely tied because... Because of the nausea and yeah, medication. Because like all those people were dying. It's funny because like... And it's not, not really funny at all, but it's wild because like the the... You know, the Reagan administration was the administration that, like, ignored AIDS as it was happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? When his fucking, when Nancy came out and was like, I, what she said something about the, that she did a good job in the AIDS, you know, movement, and everyone just like, fuck you. Yeah, dude, well, there's, like, footage of people, like, when the AIDS crisis first started happening, journalists oh, would be yeah. like, you know, do you have anything to say about this, like, gay cancer thing that's going on? And like Reagan, like made some joke, like calling the reporter gay. Like it was his, you know, their own, you know, if they would have taken the AIDS crisis seriously from the beginning, you know, maybe they people wouldn't have had to turn. Like they had nothing. Like they were, they had like no treatment. They were like it was like a death sentence, you know. And these, the compassion from like the compassionate care, like nurses, Brandy Mary. Did you hear there's a, I can't remember the documentary. It's a documentary about one of the only like nursing uh, units that gay men could go to where they were safe. And um, maybe it's who you're talking about, but they would like come and they would, one, one would do this like weird go-go kind of party once a week, like just dance with everybody. One of the, the, the activists that like really helped pass that first bill um, was a gay man. What's, his name is Dennis Perrin. I think he was a guy who was sound to like, uh, what's his name? Uh, Harvey Milk. He would sell, you know, he, 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 I read, saw his interview with him. It was really inspiring. Like, he would sell weed and stuff, but he got into cannabis because he was like an alcoholic. And cannabis was like the only thing, like, he was able to like quit drinking and just smoke cannabis. And yeah. he like considered cannabis to be like what aided him in, in quitting uh, alcohol. And he's like, I was a bad drunk. I was like, I'd fall down, you know, get into fights, all this stuff. It was bad for me. Anyway, and so he said, he'd, he'd be like, I've sold a ton of weed in my life. But the night that I got arrested, I wasn't selling weed. I had four ounces of weed that I was bringing home to my uh, partner who was like wasting away. That Those guys and that movement was like, they really, what they did was they got like a San Francisco city ordinance allowing medical cannabis like that was the first like breach what's the guy's last name again and so like watching that whole thing come down so that sets you know and then it was like 20 you know the late 2000s when like the other medical programs started popping up you know oregon uh washington state and stuff and and you know so we started like watching this legal weed come down across the country from the west coast you know and I was jealous of shit. I remember like sitting there in Philly and they're like, oh, they're legalizing weed in Colorado. It's just going to be legal, like not even medical, like it's just recreational. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, holy shit. That's nuts. Like, that's just like insane. They're just legalizing weed. This is like monumental. Were you, have you been in Amsterdam in your, <laughs> in your, I feel like that's, I don't know. I feel like the only context I have is like being in Amsterdam in the early nineties where, that's what it's you know that's what it's that's what it seemed like the Amsterdam scene 
is much in a way like much more chill like you go and you buy the weed and you smoke it right there it's like a social consumption lounge situation we don't even have that here really but there's like a sadness to that there's like kind of you know you, you get used to like people that are alcoholics and drinking a lot but you don't ever really see groups of potheads acting in, in certain variable ways and yeah. when you see that it's kind of like uh uh-huh, this is just drinking these guys are just been smoking too much for 20 years and it's hard to watch it it's hard to watch at that point because like especially at some point you have kids and stuff people you know that's the reason they have bars in general but anyway i don't like to compare alcohol to cannabis because one will destroy you and one helps you and so like when i was in you know when i was in amsterdam that was the first time i guess i bought legal weed i'm like that was cool you know, but that was like, you know, such like a vacation, you know, you're in fucking Europe at that, you're so far away, it has like nothing, not nothing like coming close to your home, right? And then there are certain places that being there felt wrong being stoned, <laughs> such as uh, the Anne Frank, I did not feel comfortable being stoned at the Anne Frank house. No, I, <laughs> I just do that. I, we were only, in the, I was only in Amsterdam for like, six hours and something some dude came in and was like i he, he could have been saying like i don't even know what he was saying because i don't even speak i didn't speak the language but he just like seemed angry he could have been like talking about a fucking soccer game i would have no idea but he was like so mad i was like oh dude i like made my friend leave and we left because <laughs> the dude was like had such like negative energy i want to i want to back up a little bit to like pre uh, what you're doing now and talk about your cannabis, cannabis book, although, and we can switch topics from there, but what kind of brought that about? Is that also tied to you being arrested in your whole life? The with... cannabis book? Yeah. So like at one point after I did like the Andre the Giant book, I had made like a list of like 30 potential topics for books and sent it to my editor and, you know, then ended up doing like the Tetris book. And then the Andy Kaufman book. And then after that, like my editor came back a few years later and was like, how about this cannabis book? Because the times had changed a lot over those few years where cannabis had gone from a very taboo subject for a comic, really, to something that was on the lips and tongues of like everybody. Because it was like Colorado legalizing, about to come, you know, medical marijuana was in Jersey and New York and Pennsylvania. And like, um, so like things started to change. And like, that was like the big thing, thing where you could start talking about cannabis, you know, no longer did you have to talk about it as if you were talking about like a murder or something like that, where, where you could be like, no this is the truth. And like, this is why this is. And in like, I got this like thing where I was like, I'm not going to take any fucking bullshit anymore about weed because like, it's all been bullshit for so long. And like, I just know that everything is false. Like, I'm just not going to accept any bullshit anymore. I think you and I have talked about, I think I, I, I talked, I had taken this like drug class, which I just thought they were going to hand out different things, but no, you had to study and shit apparently. <laughs> um, and you know, they talked about like, I mean, they didn't I mean, they, they taught us about, um, the propaganda involved and they were telling us about how, like, there was one of the tests where they put a monkey in the smoke and apparently it was like, 
like if that was a cigarette, it would have been like 30 packs at once. And they're like, oh, look, it causes harm. Therefore, marijuana bad. Like, what the fuck? They like have this like contraption they put the monkey in that like forces it to smoke. He's joint after joint after joint. Then they like cut the monkey's brain open. And it was like inconclusive anyway. Like <laughs> in some cases, like they they still will only do medical studies that like their hypothesis is that cannabis is harming a teenager. Usually, the propaganda machine on cannabis had been turning and turning and turning for like eighty years, and it kept getting stronger. Like Nixon, and then on to Reagan, it was like worse and worse. And then Clinton, you know, it was even worse under Clinton. Until things started to turn around, which didn't happen until, like, the Obama administration, really. Um, I want to move around a little of your books, and I want to mention, because I just saw it, um, that there's a, they apparently made a, a narrative movie about Tetris. Do you know what that's about? Is that following your, anything you were involved with? No, I wasn't involved with it. So this is, like, a thing that I was uh, talking about today. Like, so when I, I did all these, like, nonfiction books, and... One of the downsides of working in the genre, especially in comics, like they, if they want to take the story that you made popular to another medium, they like don't need you. So if you make it, if you do a whole original book, they can take that and do something else with it without your permission? No, no, no. But I don't own the rights to the Tetris story. Right. Right, right, right. But it's funny. You know, I saw the trailer for the movie and I was like, this. It's like watching my book, like right. so many ways. Like if they made a movie of my book, this is like almost exactly what it would look like. That's like the the second time that's happened to me. Actually, like the third or fourth time, because so when the uh, HBO made an Andre the Giant documentary, right, and it felt like it was the producers of that movie, like called me up and said they were making an Andre the Giant documentary and how they were like inspired by my book and all these things and talk to them, you know, all this stuff. And then they just like never mentioned me or mentioned the book or anything ever. And like the movie follows like the same exact plot points as my book, like exactly. Yeah. And there was like a huge billboard of it in, in, in Times Square. I remember and I was just like, this is my book. Like I'm not, so, but there's nothing I can do. I mean, what am I going to do? It's, I'm not Andre the Giant. Like, in some ways, I was, like, exploiting Andre the Giant just as much as them, you know? Uh, trying to, I don't know if I would use exploiting. I mean, you were trying to do justice, which you did. I think you really do, in all your books, really do justice to the kindness, how you are to the characters. You're not, you're not making them hard right, people. Right, but it's just I mean, like, you know. you know, watching it happen. So, you know, and yeah. I've had all these talks in Hollywood not a lot, but I've talked to Hollywood people a bunch and it always comes down to stuff like that where it's like, you really need to have like your own, has to be like your thing that you made up in a way to transfer it out of the medium. Like, so like, you know how like Werner Herzog, right? Like made that, he made that documentary on like the cave drawings or whatever. Really good. But like, he doesn't own the cave drawings. Like if they want to do a, a movie about that now, they didn't, wouldn't need Werner Herzog. But Werner Herzog is amazing, though, because he uses his specific medium to push forward his vision about these things, which is what I try to do with my comics. But, like, if you were going to say then transfer that to to another medium, it's not going to have the same 
the same magic of Herzog. You know what I mean? Someone just gave you a few million and said, I want you to work on, you know, if I get, if I said to get $10 million, what, what would you work on right now? Oh, um, uh, the Sopranos. They did make a miniseries of it, just so you know. <laughs> What's that? Oh, show. But like, I really love the show so much. And like, I think that, you know, it created a genre almost like, well, I mean, they had, you know, they had the one hour genre. I mean, the one hour, um, sorry, the one hour drama television show already existed. Right. But then Sopranos came and it was so clearly something beyond that. that they had to make up like a new name for it. And it was called Prestige TV. What do you mean? Wait, so when that wait, it cha- the name of it changed? No, I'm just saying, like the concept of oh, Prestige right, 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 gotcha. TV. <clears throat> and so, like, there's something to be said about a, a piece of art that like creates a genre. Have you thought about working in film? I still see you as a film director, even though you you've and a documentary. I see you as a documentary maker or a biofilm maker because just just because of your detail to like. I would love to do a documentary film one day. I, I just love interviewing. I, I love hearing people's stories, man. There's these the, these wrestling interviews called shoot interviews where the wrestler speaks, you know, out of character and just like um, for real and speaks like, you know, frankly about uh, what the wrestling business is and stuff. Not you know, Not in character or anything. And they just kind of go over the, their whole career and just hearing them tell stories is like my favorite thing. Like I've been watching lately all these like just first person interviews with just like random people, people that are not compelling storytellers or any kind of like any, anything special. I got you. And it's just like amazing hearing just like any, everybody's life is like so compelling really (laughs) because everybody has so many different ups and downs and problems and different issues that they deal with that. that, That's the thing that's like so compelling to me. So like that, that human side of any story to me is like, what story do you want to, so I'm taking this as you're asking me to tell a story. You're asking you to tell a story. You're asking me for you to forgive permission for you to tell me a story, so I'm just gonna do that. I'm like addicted to hearing fucked up stories right now. All right, I'll tell you what. I'll trade you some fucked up stories if we go back and forth. I have a lot of fucked up stories, but I just don't like to talk about them and think about them anymore because I think that like all the shit that I used to do when I was a kid, like I used to think was like cool, and now I'm like that was so fucking stupid that like I don't want to talk about them in the way that. I would tell the story because I'd tell it as if it was awesome. Don't want to like make it sound cool to other people, even though I'm saying, don't do this. Don't do this. What if you, what if you put that into the narrative and you told me the story knowing you don't have to worry. You're not going to sound, you're purposely not going to sound cool. Like in whatever way you tell me, you, you can make it so you don't sound cool telling me. You know, I have a lot of stories about like before I got stopped drinking I would get myself like in dangerous situations. Well, I don't want to cross into your personal life. I mean, I'm happy that maybe not with my 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 viewers. Every once in a while, people say like, "Oh, for your viewers," I'm like, I've never thought about the viewers. I'm glad they're here, <laughs> but I can't conceive of whoever else is in this view. With, do you want to hear a story? Yeah, sure. Topic, I can I can share one. 
and I would just I would ask you to consider the topic and then maybe share one of your own, but you don't have to. I'll make mine quick. I mean, you should check out Risk Podcast if you. I know you're not a big podcast person, but um, those are all stories that like you, people don't think they're ever going to tell. Yeah, I mean, I'm into. Um, I like. I think childhood stories. All right, I'll give you. You give me a topic. I'll give you a story. Well, you went to summer camp as a kid, right? Yes, only for like 15 years straight. That so like when I was a kid, I like wish I, I would see summer camp like in movies and stuff. Yeah, and I was like, that looks so cool. You get to like live in the camp all summer. Like there was a there was a movie that I loved when I was a kid that was like a TV movie, and Michael J. Fox is in it. It's like Michael J. Fox. It's Skate Town, USA. No, it's a camp movie. It's called Poison Ivy, and uh. like. It's just like they're the camp can- counselors. Like, you know, it's just like basic camp shit. There's a color war and all that stuff. It seemed like it was, aw- it would have been so awesome to me as a kid, but was it really uh, awesome? Uh, was camp awesome? Yeah. I'd, I'd never been as happy as I've ever been in my entire life than at camp. Now, that being said, that was not a that was not childhood at camp. I did not I did not deal with childhood well at any no matter what where it was. Uh I didn't I hated overnight camp as a kid. I mean I, I went to day camp and stuff. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever like I was never the kind of kid who would like admit to liking shit. But <laughs> I did get to like like but I did get really into like um art, arts and crafts. I did get into theater. I did I directed my first musical at camp at seventeen. With no fucking experience at all, I don't know, and no musicians. Stern, Howard Stern talked about summer camp a lot, and he he like liked summer camp too because he was like, I was such a nerd in high school, and then you go to summer camp and you're kind of have a, I like had a social life there, and like why wasn't the nerd? <laughs> like, what did you have? Kind of an experience like that. I can exactly like that, which is weird because I would feel myself like you know I would I mean I hated high school I hated. I hated being socialized, but certain things like that I loved. And it was really weird to be so bad at high school and being social, but then be popular at camp. There was one summer I dated seven people in a summer, which wouldn't have happened in like 10 of my real life years. Like one different person a week. And two of them were, <laughs> and two of them were sisters. Oh, wow. Yes, yeah, see, like, that's amazing. Like, I didn't have that experience at it's just, all. It's anything, I mean, if you've ever lived in a, it's just the benefits of a small community, but also it's it's perfect socialized living because you're, you don't pay for anything. Your food's coming. You have a place to stay for two months. You get paid. I mean, it's just, camp was a lot of fun. I'm sure I liked it somewhat as a kid, but I think because I was just a weird fucking kid that, like, fitting in was never easy. But in the sun, but in the sun, but in, I think my best camp years were between like 17 to like 21 because I was older. It was, it was fun. I mean, the thing about camp is you could you could literally come up with a different personality every other day, and nobody's gonna really know. I'm, well, if you didn't make if you if you made a big personality and that's who you were, you were stuck there. But you could really feel a lot of people like it would be weird. The last few nights, there was always someone the last night at camp who would start crying out of nowhere because they're like, I have to go back to my hut with my evil parents like yeah all, and you never know if that was real like people and, and, and camp time was different <laughs> camp time is like a, it's like a month and a week so it's just a whole different way of living that i can't explain but i, I do feel like it has it because it kind of has a socialist dream it has a it lot to offer. Me, i think when i think back on my college experience i kind of think of that 
in a way as like a version of summer camp <laughs> um because you know you're stashed away we're in where'd you go to college again uh university of scranton why did you pick Scranton to go to? It's a odd. I don't know. I mean, like an arm, one of the armpits of Pennsylvania. I don't know. I but... heard it was a party school. I, I was. I wasn't correct in that assumption. You know, but it was like crazy because it's like a whole the whole school and party scene takes place within like a four block radius, like everything. And for for like four years, you don't ever leave like this tiny little spot in Scranton. And it's like this little ecosystem slash community debauchery. Remember that scene in Pinocchio where all the kids go to that like place where they turn into donkeys where you just like go fuck shit up and like drink. They're like drinking soda and candy, but obviously we were drinking alcohol and doing drugs and stuff. But uh, it's like this fantasy world. Like there's no other. It doesn't really. And it's it's not that different. I, if I look at my, I mean, I was in, I was in a stoner fraternity in, in college if I look at that time, it was the same kind of thing as camp. Like it really just played out the same way. When, it, when people live in a smaller community, I think they work a little harder to be nicer because they know there's a ton more accountability. You can't just be a total dick to someone in a, in a community of 30 people and hope it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like in other colleges, I actually liked that about it though. Like people were cool, like cooler and nicer than like when I'd go to like say Jersey, like Rutgers or something like that. You know, people are kind of dicks and they're not going to see you again or whatever. You should start like some kind of week-long camp because people can, you can work on that get a good amount of money and you're just working on it and you have it like once a year. I would, if you could, if we could do some kind of weird arts camp for like a week or two, I would hope that I would work with you guys on that because Sarah, it would you, be you, awesome. me and Sarah, we would do some, we would do some good, good shit. <laughs> I mean, like it would have to just be like the cool things about summer camp. I mean, like what were what were the cool things the arts programs what did you guys like play kickball and stuff i mean i did all the musicals so that was a lot of fun for me i would recommend before i say that i would recommend like there are places you can go that do like adult they do like you know adult camp i'd recommend one of those find the right people make sure it's run by the right kind of people but i would i think you would love that just like a you know i mean you can't really go back as a unless you're going to work there and you're not i mean the only choice is i i would want it to like replicate a, a summer camp that doesn't like an 80s summer camp <laughs> like have you watched have you watched the movie crip camp yeah i have watched crip camp the first half of that to me is like that's like camp yeah i kind of wish they just kept it for the first half the first half was much stronger for me what was what happens in the first half and second it's half. just basically footage of them walking around and telling their story it's it's fine but i just i happen to like the rawness of the early part like so camp, so camp was weird. Camp changed for me. A new person came in, but, but the person who was there before, the person came, came into my camp really did change my life in a lot of ways. And um, what he did was really simple was he asked people, he would ask the counselors what they want to do. And if it could sync it up, that would be their job, which is to me is really brilliant because why do you have, why would you want somebody doing something that they don't feel like they're, that they like it all and they're not good at because they don't like it? Why not try to sync that? I, I'm still yeah. shocked at places where I'm like, Hey, I work at your, I work at your place and I can do this. You don't have anyone doing this. Can I have that job? And they're like, no, you're not even doing the job we paid you to do very well. They really want people to be like interchangeable. I just really think if people did, and I'm, I'm a pretty big, big socialist. If everybody did, they did the best, our world would balance itself out some way. I don't know exactly how or how, why, but if everyone did what they did and, and there was, you know, and housing was prepared and if it all kind of balanced out somehow that all the working was still going into this pool and it would, it, we'd have a, we'd have a country of happy people. So what happened was um, the gut busters, which feels like a tricky story. 
Um, I'm going to assume you were a bit of a chunk, chunky kid. Is that a, is that a fair assumption? Yeah. I mean, I was a big chunker. I was always chunky. Yeah, yeah. I'm still chunky, but in different ways. I'm less chunky than I thought I used to be. <laughs> <laughs> so I was not into sports. My father was really into sports. My grandfather, I, I the one piece of sports that was cool that I would have done is ice hockey. But my mother was too fucking neurotic for that. But I got to see a lot of ice hockey with my dad when I was a kid because my grandfather, we had like, my grandfather was at one point in the 70s or early 80s, he had held the longest, bought, what do you call it, seats for the, what's it called for sports? When you have it for the year? No, when you have, when you have like a thing, you buy the whole season. What's that called? There's, oh, oh, um, season tickets. So when we had season tickets and he had, we had it for years and we, our season tickets were like the fourth row in where the Zamboni comes in. So it was just a lot of, and it was, you know, 76, 77 before. If you can believe it before how much were required Dude, so they were like taking you to hockey games and stuff like you were obviously broad street like- and this is broad street bullies this is like 10 15 fights and no helmets and just be it was i loved it i mean i'm i'm not a you know you give me something like that to watch yeah um but i i never could play i uh i sucked and my dad was always the coach so he would like try to give he would try to tweak it so i would be good but that this didn't work Right. Um, there's a whole other story I'll share at some point about me getting knocked out by my, the first baseball I tried to catch. <laughs> uh, but so anyway, so, so so for this thing, they made they, we had leagues. Leagues were like just, you know, I don't know. There was, I think, like eight games or not, maybe a 10 game season for leagues. And the guys who were doing leagues got really, they got serious about it. And I was just like, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't against it, but they were like, they did a draft. You know, are you a sports person up to do a draft? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not a very competitive person because when you have competition like that, you you tell 25 kids to try something and you and you and you tell three of them, maybe three of them, one of them really good, second one eh, not as good, third one not as good as that guy, and you're and you're sending 27 whatever 17 kids home to feel like they suck. I don't understand that whole, as a as a concept. I don't get it. I mean, I think that maybe things are. I think things may be slightly different now. Like, I mean, I, to me, like it took me a really long time to like realize that you could like do sports and not, you don't even, you don't have to like be good at it. You can suck at it and like think it's fun and like have a good time. Like when I like see baskets or something, like I like doing that and it's fun, but I suck at it, but like you can still, but I never would do it because I'm like, I just suck at that, you know? And these guys were, they were good guys, but they got a little bit into the sports. And I don't know, looking back, I think they were just good dudes who wanted to make it exciting for the, for the campers. But the other part of it I didn't like is that you're now going, you're spending time, you're, you have to then scout. So I'm out like scouting the kids that everyone's just, you know, they're just picking out the, you know, you get three kids that are really good. Oh, which they might as well just did it by size. Yeah. Because it's just literally like the good kids are getting talked to and everyone ignored. And I didn't like that. I didn't, I didn't like things that let people feeling felt that they were not they were left out mm. and if you win so you know you get there's there's pizza and ice cream you've heard of pizza and ice cream <laughs> you have ice cream pizza so like <laughs> at, when you're at camp you you might get ice cream and pizza but it's camp pizza and, and it's not it's ice cream and it's not good yeah yeah ice cream you might do it's not good and the reward if you win is ice cream and pizza party from outside from outside because right. doesn't doesn't do anything and i'm sitting there and my brain is i mean i've always been a very subversive person i don't think i was aware of the thought process but somewhere in my brain goes okay 
And and the first event is tug of war. So can you see where this is going? Do you have to be like the anchor in the tug of war? If you if you win tug of war, you get seven wins the first day. So as long as you may win one more game, you'll you're likely to win the whole thing. Because wow. if you win if you win the first if you if you win tug of war, you get like the first one gets seven wins, and then the next person gets four wins. Why is tug of war so like highly valued? I think it's just the kind of thing that everyone can do together. But also, when I you know thinking about like again in my brain somewhere, it's like okay, so all I gotta do, how do I win leagues? Well, I I want to I want to fuck with the system, so I picked all the largest kids because <laughs> they weren't being talked to. Um, I wanted to kind of be a, I wanted, I didn't want to fuck with them so much. I wanted to fuck with the system, but it was pretty obvious who they were, but it's also, it was, you know, it's like, you know, I knew like no one else was coming up to these kids, you know, Hey kid picking his ass in left field, like <laughs> talking to a fucking some weird, you know, you know, larger, weird talking to a bug for like 20 minutes, whatever. I mean, they were fine kids. I'm just being a bit of a dick at this point. Um, so I pick him out. We have our team and like, so I'm thinking, okay, if they win tug of war, then they win for, for the most part. But uh, and they won tug of war, obviously biggest kids in camp. And um, we did win the season, but there was like the games were horrifying because it was just like basketball with the other team always just catching up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So did you guys win another thing after that? We won. We won the whole season. Oh wow. And again, like, you know, in this, in some ways it felt weird. Well, the bad part was I had some cheers for them. I, I mean, I had to acknowledge that this was the fat kid team. I didn't call them fat, but I was like, we, we called the gut busters and we would do this cheer. This is what I feel bad about looking back. And I'm only referencing this because you, because you, what you said about telling our own story, I would go, you know, uh, he going to call gut busters. We ain't afraid of no food. And I would just like <laughs> do like shit like that, which is pretty fucked up, but it worked because it was just acknowledging that these were that we were the big kid to game. Although I was probably very thin at this point. <laughs> I, I bet you everybody on that team would be thin compared to the kids. See like a movie from the seventies. Yeah, of like this is the fat kid, and they like barely seem fat yeah. <laughs> compared to like the kids of today. As someone who has collected vintage clothing, you're just like, why was like why are all the fat people? Why were all the fat people? from the 80s where i don't know it was like it didn't make any sense it was too people were too skinny yeah yeah there was like not even like the fattest I mean, shouldn't be using the word fat so i feel like i'm not I'm probably, as fat but no 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 we're all just like bigger and chunkier as people now in general yeah i mean i just think we're all, it's i don't know i i don't know what that's about i think that's just about uh, we also dress things. way more slovenly than we used to. Like, if you ever look at, um, when I look at like uh, family pictures from like the early '80s, say at like Thanksgiving, everybody's in like, like it looks like they're going to church or something. Like they're in like these really nice dressed-up clothing for a special day, and it's just like something people don't do at all like now. <laughs> I've been looking for a good vintage three-piece suit for like ten years. They're they're not. I, I think I don't think it exists. I don't think anyone that big wear, wore one until the nineties. I mean, it's hard to find. A, like, it's like why you got to just like if you find something that fits you, you just got to buy it because it's so rare to find something really cool that fits you good. It's vintage. 
There's gotta be a story in you somewhere. I mean, you tell stories for a living. I know it's funny. I don't, I don't love telling um, stories about myself anymore. That's okay. Are there any that you, I know you have two kids or any that are, they've, is that starting to inspire your thoughts on writing characters? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I definitely feel like I'm able to write to make kids laugh more now and like tell jokes that I know kids would like because kids have like at least you know very immature (laughs) sense of humor I would say that here's a story that I've been thinking about about how like um so like when I was in college we would our house was like trash like beyond trash like it couldn't it was like almost indescribably trash like this thing where like even if you cleaned it for like a week it would still like be just like unbelievably trash like you know we would like shoot fireworks into the ceiling and like fucking just beer everywhere cigarette but like anything you could fraternity house no but it was like seven dudes living in a house every part of the time so you know it'd be like kegs like fucking mud shit like just like as nasty as you can imagine (laughs) and uh and i was thinking with the amount that my kids destroy my house and the frequency it's not that different from from (laughs) when i lived there like in 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 a lot of different ways like you know that was like a little bit more nasty when we were in college but the shit the way things get fucked the kids destroy stuff yeah it's so random that you come in and into the room and you're like what the f-? like what were you doing like and and that's the kind of stuff that's the kind of stuff we would do in college too you'd like i remember i'd like wake up and walk into my living room and be like what the fuck like, <laughs> like it's not just that there's beer cans and shit everywhere it's like somebody stole like a giant tree out of somebody's front lawn on the way home from the bar and now it's like in our <laughs> living room or something or somebody broke a hole like in the wall or like some kind of like i actually loved that i mean people would <laughs> i remember people would be like how do you live like this i'm like i actually love it because i think it's it's interesting it's like <laughs> it's not boring ever as a bi- it's a biographer what are some stories that you might have Maybe you can understand that, that or story odd or weird or funny, interesting stories that you did on people you researched. One thing that I think about a lot is um, so we've been talking and learning more about neurodivergence and like autism and ADHD and things like that. And so I think of Andy Kaufman now so much under the guise of like neurodivergence. That makes sense. Um, and like one of the things about Andy Kaufman is that he was with prostitutes a lot. Like he like preferred the company of prostitutes and like part of it was like his, the reason he gave and this like, this is such like an autistic thing. He, he preferred it because it's like the, the relationship is like clearly defined. There's no like ambiguity about do they, do they not, you know, you don't have to like pick up signals that can be difficult. Like, you know, that was one of the things I always had trouble with as a single person was picking up signals that, you know, it just it was difficult for me. 
And so I think about him in that context, right? That's being wanting, preferring the prostitution relationship because of the it's so well defined is a such an autistic. Thing. Yeah, and I mean I don't know what you want you want to say. I do I ident- I do I I've identified as a neurodiverse over a bunch of years, but I mean it's so tricky because. You know, some of that stuff feels like depression. Some of it feels like anxiety. Some of it feels like ADD or ADHD. And it's some of it is just being a fucking smart and like curious human being. Mm -hmm. But when you start thinking the stories like that and you realize how much damage gets done by people who are just like just creative people, like I don't know, it's something I'm learning the more. I'm sure you've seen this because I feel like you've been, you know, we're getting a little popularity here. Um, You've been through, you know, all kinds of press. And you can get attacked for this shit too, which is oh yeah, which I don't understand. I don't, and even people that support you would attack you that that know you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Is, is that like a rite of passage that people have to go through? You make all this shit. People are like, oh, we love this, and then they just get, are dicks to you for a while, and then you just do it again. Like, what? What? Why did you? Why is, was you doing something intrude on them? Is that wh- where is that? I'm feeling it, but I don't know. I don't have words because I don't know how to explain it. I, although nobody really wants to admit it, it's like jealousy. It's not like you want see everybody's life and you're like, oh, I should have that. They don't deserve it. Like, it, I don't think it's like that cut and dry, really. But in some ways, it is. Like, that's what it is. They want better things for themselves, really. I mean, I think people are, are dissatisfied with their own lives. Right. But that's also just working more. <laughs> what it's also like you could also like instead of getting mad at you you could like work more yeah like do do that or yeah or base a career on talents you actually have people you know get jealous they 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 want i'm not saying that there's people everyone's walking around jealous of me i i am just as guilty as anybody else of like seeing other people's accomplishments and feeling envy and things like that I think like when I first started making comics. Do you ever get jealous of your? Do you ever get jealous of yourself? Uh, <laughs> I. Oh, that old box Brown was so much better than me. He could write that old box. He could. I go through periods of where I like lose comp- self confidence, yeah. and then it comes back. That's every fucking artist, for better or worse. I mean, what you feel is tough, but I'm realizing that's everybody. And I just, I'm always like, I wish I could just feel confident when things aren't going so great but it's also like we extrapolate so my i talked to my my other artists comics friends about this too like we so quickly extrapolate that the negatives like if someone doesn't you know what i mean like if you don't get like a phone call or an email regarding you know whatever your project or or whatever it is you can quickly be like everyone's forgotten about me what a waste what am i doing you go through like the whole like start comparing yourself to other people you know that are like more successful and someone I was dealing with who was more more better known better known person. Uh, I hadn't heard from him in a few days, and I just went to that place of now they've all not only this person calling that I'm a fucking fraud, and now they were talking to each other and about this fraudship, and and you start getting into that and you believe it, and it's crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah, you believe <laughs> it quickly, man. It's so funny, like how. It's set, it's fucked up because like you can quickly go from feeling like you're like today I was feeling really good at, because I had like a meeting that went well and I'm like I wish I just could have this feeling 
all the time. Like, and just know that even if I don't have the meeting that day, like overall, things are still good. You should check out, I was going to recommend this to you. I just watched Shangri-La's, Shangri-La's, which is about Rick Rubin's like music studio. Okay. I just kept thinking you would, you would dig it. There's things in there that he talked about. It's just four episodes. I think it's on, um, Showtime or whatever. I, uh, it's, it's, it's about Rick, it's about Rick Rubin's studio, which is called Shangri-La. Shangri-La. Okay. And I just, I think, I guess my point is, it's just like, I think if you were encouraged, if you were understood, I think, you know, in, in a different world, we would, people like you and I would have been, would have been taken better care of. Yeah, maybe. And so I think, I think it's just like part of that shit is just like not fitting into the same bullshit mainstream thing everyone else can do and you, and, and beating yourself up for it. But that just means you, you're, you're a unique person. I, sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, you know, if I should have played it safe, like, you know, use my college degree in some way and, you know, kept some square job or whatever. And I, now I'd have like a retirement and all this stuff. And, but I would have been so fucking miserable. You'd have an extra 10 years of being mean to yourself if you did it that way. Yeah, it would have what's been the, just like, what's the point of just that? pure misery the whole time. It's a yeah. lot of ups and downs though. I mean, that's the thing that I find to be like the, the most difficult thing about like riding the wave. Cause like, it's just so feast and famine. There's so many ups and downs all the time where you go from your careers over to you're back on top again. Whereas like, you know, if you had some job, whatever job, like every other job in the world, <laughs> it would be just like a consistent. Yeah, but you would thing. probably wind up becoming an alcoholic again or like, I mean, not everyone can do that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm no different than you in that regards. I mean, you're, you're a much harder working person than me, but I'm, I'm you know, I, I, I don't know. I've stepped out a lot for these reasons because it's just a bunch of bullshit. And it's funny, like for me, at least with starting this stuff, leaving my, well, leaving my job, uh, being encouraged not to come back. It's not the same thing as being fired, is it? I don't know. Um, but it's like for the first time in the summer and even now, it's like, oh, like this shit that I feel insecure about is what is working. And it's so, and I think the only way really solution out of that is just to be a happy person and not, not really not get so swayed by good or bad because it shifts and it changes. And it's, it's a whole other, it's, it's just different kind of work to do. It's a lot of, so much of it is tied to like actual literal, like your finances. How so? Tell me more about that. Cause I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feeling that, but maybe you're, maybe that starts to like eat away at me in terms of like safety. I'm like, you know, I have two kids now and I'm like, am I actually, you know, the best thing, is it really the best thing for them, for me to whatever, be doing this type of thing? You know, you have to wait, you start weighing these options. Ultimately, I think it is better because I'm a more happy person and they have a more happy dad around then. Uh, but like, those are the things that like start to break away and fall apart when you start getting down on yourself and going through like these low periods you're like you know it starts to that's what that's that's the hardest part to me of like just like being an artist is these the ups and downs 
But I, one thing I've learned, if I can say anything, one thing I've learned from hearing a lot of people talk about this kind of stuff is all you really get is being present in that moment to make something. If you can just deal with it in those terms, no, and that you'll always the, you'll always be good. Those mo- the moments where I'm actually drawing are like the happiest thing. Like I'm, yeah. when I finally lost in the actual process of like making the comic and like I'm just get swept away in it like that is like that's what I feel that's like what I'm seeking well and you and you're a very rare artist who has gotten some attention in their own life it doesn't happen to a lot of people and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that I mean I think that's we're supposed to do what we're meant to do and I think it's inspiration for, inspirational for other people but I do think there's a difference in like thinking about, you know, you start thinking about yourself as an artist and what that looks like once you have kids and, you know, bigger responsibilities, it shifts it, but it doesn't, I don't think it changes it. It's, I just like, uh, I, I like almost wish that it could, it didn't have to be tied to like it being a career. Like, I wish it was like, all right, you're an artist, here's X amount of dollars and do it every month. Do you know how many countries do it that way? A lot more countries do do that than here. I mean, the art that would come out from that is would be superior. I mean, that's the whole European model of art and music performance and all that kind of stuff. It's it's supported, it's paid for. You know, you, you, I don't know. I mean, I've been in. I'm sure you've been in both situations where you freelanced, but then you were too stressed, or then you had a lot of time and like. You know, I mean, it's never. It's always grass is greener a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like, for better or worse having done a little bit of this on my own, not a lot. I mean, I, I'm not super protected, but a little bit. Um, you get you get your fucking life back. Yeah. Like, my life is mine. I could say, I could make it, you know, I could, I don't know, there's something about, I'm a happier person. I was, I was not happy doing both worlds. I was not happy being a teacher and then being tre- not treated well and then having to come home and do this shit. All the happiness this has brought me killed with where was getting killed by just going to work. Yeah, I know that feeling. Oh my God. I can't even tell you how much I want to share this story. I can share it with you. I don't have to share it with you. It's a really dumb story. Where I was a teacher. I almost, uh, you should write, you should write that. You want to make a good book? Write that. <laughs> make a lot of it up. Write, write that. It was mostly, I, I almost enjoyed every aspect of teaching except for, I hated my boss so much. Like she hated me. That's a part of the scenery. That's a part of the natural um, in, in, embedded. Yeah, I mean, it was just like besides the that, which is a huge fucking thing that you're. you're it, it would determine, you know, she would have eventually let me go. I mean, aside from that, like I think about like if that wasn't the case, like if she was cool, I might never have become a comic artist like i would maybe still be a teacher because it would be i really liked a lot of aspects of it you know that was a thing at the time i was like god this is like not fair like why is this happening and it was ultimately a really good thing because i hated it i hated living under that it was really like an abusive she was like an abusive person like where she would like use her power and influence to kind of like like to just treat people poorly are you comfortable sh- embedding or sharing with this this stuff that happened with uh, NFTs? Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm curious about that because it seemed like that was a, that you had it. I mean, you had a situation like you're talking about, and then you had you got out. Yeah. So, so talk about that. That's another one. That was more recent. So like, I had been working with this company for like two or two years, where they were paying me to do illustrations and a lot of illustration work. Like, 
over a thousand dollars worth of illustration work uh, a week it was a lot and suddenly it just was like gone they weren't they weren't like listen we're gonna do something else they just like didn't stop calling me for like a month then i was like well what's going on like do you not need any more illustrations ever again i was like do you what's going on you know do you not need illustrations anymore and the dude was like uh, no, you know, all of my ideas now are NFT related. And he knew, like, I didn't want to do NFTs. And so I was like, all right, well, I guess we better part ways. Are you saying we should part ways then? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> like, not even <laughs> looking at it. It's like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, and so then I was like, all right, well, I got to find new new work. So, like, the first thing I did was, like, go on Twitter and be, like, looking for illustration work, my old job is now like getting into nfts and there someone was like who was it who's your employer because these guys and it just like went fucking viral i think i was like the number 10 trending thing nationwide on twitter that day because you know nfts were not liked by a lot of a lot of people the guy was pissed or whatever but i was like whatever you did this you know, and I was telling them that I was like, dude, don't get into NFTs. It's not going to be received well. You know, the artist community does not like it. And he was like, no, 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 whatever. It's going to be great. <laughs> and then it gets leaked out and he's like, realizes that everyone hates it and he doesn't do it. Like he like dodged a bullet by me. That's a crazy story. It, like, explain, like explaining it. I just think more people need to be, I was really proud that you were so vocal about that and on social media, because why aren't we calling these fuckers out more often? It's scary because like people, if I was a less impulsive person, oh, well, next time I try to get a job, they're going to be like, oh, how did he treat his last employer? Oh, he (laughs) like lit them up in an Engadget article and like destroyed their reputation completely. I mean that place might pay you a good rate if if you're think if you think of it in the other direction like oh we, this guy yes we will take care of him we're not you know I think that's why people are hesitant to do stuff like that but at the same time like again we're talking about like being an artist you, it gives you like a privilege almost I don't know I, I don't know man I really think we're meant to do our own thing in the world and I just think that if we lived in a natural world where you would have been encouraging some of these gifts and and other ways and if you had a system that was more built on fairness that you would, you'd be a happy person. Yeah. But like, we're all, I mean, you know, I mean, I think a lot about you and like, I think about Jan and Rob and you and Sarah and your favorite people. And it's like, you guys are, you're doing the best you can, but like none of us can make it work. Yeah. And and then I, and I started thinking about especially the summer more about like collectivism and I don't know. How can I like make sure that like my friend's parents are not going to end up in an old age home by themselves that's treated like shit. How can I, and I was part of me was thinking about like there's this really cool. I saw some art. I read some article or news story on this really cool. Like it was a it was a old age home artist colony, and it was just people encouraged. I mean, it was probably expensive as yeah. fuck, but just doing their work as artists, being older, and like I don't know, like what are we gonna have left? None. I mean, none of us are gonna be able to ever retire. Yeah, like that's not like I don't know, man. Like. It's- we're gonna find out, I guess, in the next like twenty years, like what this shit's gonna. Every day, all these things you did or didn't do, like it's not gonna really matter. Like you get one life, and I, you know, you never know. I mean, I would also encourage you. You could try to. I mean, I don't think some of my favorite artists, and I think you're like this as well. You change things. Like we're not stuck in any of this shit we're doing. 
you know, you, you never saw, you could make a change and go back to something and who knows? I mean, some of my favorite artists did all this crazy shit. I've had to do like a, a fiction book for the first time in a long ass time. And I'm like really excited about it. That's a, it's a, it's a, uh, are you, when you say fiction book, uh, it's a graphic it's novel? A, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. But like, and it was something I started like a really long time ago. Um, and then they're finished and like nobody was looking for fiction from me for like a really long time i was talking to this one publisher dude and he was like do you have any fiction and i was like oh so i'm like really excited to like do something different what are you can you are you comfortable talking about some of the ideas you've had are you allowed it's kind of like a adventure story i wouldn't say like it's a kid's story but it's all ages there's no like swearing or violence or anything in it and no sex no sex um it's two guys waiting for this guy godot to come <laughs> it'd be it'd be funny to make to like take a humorous approach and and do a graphic novel on my dinner with andre but just like change it up in some there's been so many versions of that i mean you, you've seen some wrestling ones there's, oh yeah my breakfast with blassie oh my god that's a, i remember watching that made, made myself watch it and i don't think it was very good i love my i love uh, my breakfast with blassie it's so good but it's the the beginning part is good, and then at the end there's like this weird, they like half script slash improv, this weird thing where Andy gets hit on by a another patron at the bar. Oh no! <laughs> it's funny, and it's actually like his girlfriend, <laughs> which so. But it's like, it, it, you know, it it knowing that it's completely scripted like ruins the you know the aspect of it that's interesting which is that it's real i was just watching something it might have been the shangri-la show that was talking about oh it was so okay it was so the reason i thought about that that rick rubin was a big wrestling fan oh yeah yeah and he talks about in some points in his early days of like selling you know i mean he was he was a member of uh, bc boys and he was you know promoting them and mixing for them and that he saw that he that he realized that he needed to be like a villain character. And I just love I just love when people present things that are out of context, but they're like, oh, that makes perfect sense. And then you're like, oh, this now that make that relationship, you know, that makes sense. He um, owned he like funded slash owned a small wrestling organization uh, in the '90s called Mid uh, called Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Huh. Um. He like completely funded them for a while. For like, they were only in business like a handful of years, but they had like, uh, you know, it was regional, nice pro wrestling territory. It's it's weird. I I watched wrestling as a kid. I don't know. I, I like love it, although I don't you know pursue it that much. But it is something that I will. It's like heavy metal. I will always have a place in my heart of like old school wrestling culture. Yeah, I mean, it was so different when I was a kid, like because it seemed so. They tried to make it seem more re- real, as fake as it, like as it, it was more like a presentation of something that was supposed to be like a real event. It, it was like a different presentation of the magic show, where someone was taking it seriously and you're really doing illusions, or whatever. And then now it's like, hey, this is a magic show. We're doing tricks. You know what I mean? It's like it's known. It's not. It's pres- presented as a fake thing. Like I don't know how to explain it. 
Like it was almost like back in the day you'd put it on and it was not that much different than watching like a baseball game. But like, except for there was a part in the baseball game where all hell breaks loose and like one of the umpires starts getting hit with a baseball bat or something. Do you know the history of like when they started, when it really broke into scripting from like... Uh, it was, so it's been scripted like almost all the way back. Okay. like. Like literally to like the twenties or something, when they started really having fake wrestling. I'm gonna ask you one more question and call it a day. What is one something that nobody would think you'd be really into that you you are into? There's a cartoon show that is my is for my kids, um, and it's probably like probably the most mainstream thing that I'm interested in, and it's called Bluey, and it's a it's for children young children but it's such a well-written and well-made cartoon and it's it's it was like funded at least partially by the australian government and it, it takes place in australia and like i want i i almost want to write like an essay about how it's like one of australia's greatest exports in that you know if, this is like a, an example of why we need you have arts funding. You you fund something amazing that explains to children, even at a young age, in, through humor and just like really brilliant, well written, well done, well voice acted little cartoons that are good for kids and there's enough in it for the parents, whatever. And it also explains so much about Australian culture. And now it's been a worldwide hit. And now you have this worldwide hit show that's really like an ambassador for Australian culture to the world. And like, that's like almost the entire point of art. about my book that's coming out in July. You can tell me anything you want. So I have a book coming out in July, um, which is about how the deregulation of media impacted a generation of people and in very negative ways obviously does that come from your research of all the shit you did around around your um forget the kid's name the young star is it your is that do your research of commercialism and i for some reason uh, want to play place things in the 80s or i and talk about that era all the time um so that's kind of where that came from and i just was like there's got to be a story here and it's just uh it's actually i feel like it'll make it might make some people really mad it might be a controversial book because it just talks about how much control media has over our lives specifically disney did um, you see that documentary just came out that his daughter made the one of the I did uh, actually. Is that good? I, I wanted to watch it, but I just didn't get into it. It was pretty good. Yeah, it's about like um, the depiction of women in film. It's it's actually great. I liked it a lot. I'll have to check it out. But yeah, it seemed like they did not do justice. They're a, they're a confusing company because they're the kind of company that's very vocal about like giving like um, same sef- same sex. You know, uh, insurance to same-sex couples, giving trans, like, covering trans surgery, but they're just a. I mean, if you think about them, they're kind of a scummy company. They oh yeah took all the fucking public access shit, 
stole it, and then copyright wrote it and charged people to make it again. Oh, yeah, yeah. What the I fuck mean, is they that? they made all of their money. I mean, all of their big early hits were public domain stories. But they bought it, and they were like, fuck you to use it, which just makes them dicks. Yeah, I know. And then they also, like, pushed changed copyright law so none of their stuff would fall into the public domain my understanding of that i've done some research is it had to do with hendrix and dylan's estates change that no disney was lobbying for it forever it got rolled up into the it got rolled into the because it's in the (laughs) sonny bono copyright act so it did have the stuff for the musicians and stuff in it too but Really, what it did was extend Mickey Mouse's copyright, which would have gone into the public domain in like the early 90s until like now. <laughs> it's supposed to be 70 years after the person's death. And like, really, I like Dylan, but I'm still have to wait. Not, you know, I don't know how Dylan's not doing great right now. Maybe he's got 10 years. I don't care enough about Dylan to ever make us to ever get something made in another 80, you know, another set 85 years for anybody. Like, well, he sold all his, he sold like his whole catalog also, Dylan. Right. But whoever bought it, bought it for that reason that it's still, I don't know. It's a confusing thing and it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but they just, you know, I don't know. They're confusing to figure out because they're, they are leading the way in some of the more multiculturalism, but you just feel like they have a lot of money and they just don't give a fuck in some ways. It just seems like lip service to me. I mean, That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Hey, thanks so much for checking this out. Um, please check out all the episodes um, around uh, Brian in our podcast. We definitely dig into, you know, the whole theme of the podcast is outsider, uh, outsiders in general, outsider art, music. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy that we've done, we've dug more over the last, you know, year into more alternative, you know, alternative comics. Um, and this is, an, you know, again, having Brian here has been great. Please check out our website, vintagianosarchive.com. This is a big project. It's not just it's not just the podcast. It's this podcast. It is. Uh, we have a full website. I have a photo archive on there. I have all these about fifty deep dives that are a lot of stuff that we dig into on the on the page. Um, we have a very popular Instagram. We just hit over forty one. We're about to hit forty one thousand followers. Uh, it's very. I gotta say, it's such a supportive place. I really run it more like a, a supportive community. I don't really, I don't, you know, we, we get rid of trolls. I treat people very well. There's a lot of kindness in all this work. Um, one last thing, we're doing a tribute to Paul Rubens, PB Herman. I got to, he was very, he was a follower of our page, which was a huge honor. Um, I definitely stepped, once that happened and I got to know him a little bit, I stepped up my game and this whole project has been pretty much a tribute to Paul and Pee Wee. who was, it was a really big influence on me being a weirdo in uh, in a very mainstream area of Philadelphia in 1985, when I watched um, Big Adventure, it, it, it blew a hole in my brain so deep that it took me like 20 years to realize how deep it was. Uh, so we're do, we're we're accepting um, uh, submissions. They can be videos. They can be like creative tributes. Uh, they can be stories. 
Um, there are going to be people that may have known him or work with him. And then, honestly, a lot of this is just for fans. You know, uh, this the page is really kind to of me. I was grieving. A lot of people were grieving on the page. I decided to do a seven-day uh, um, tribute to him. Uh, I'm Jewish. Paul was Jewish. And it's kind of like... It was symbolic of sitting Shiva. So I did like seven days of programming. And there's also a deep dive. If you go to deep dives on Paul, on PB and Paul, that has most of that stuff. But I mean, honestly, in all the work I've done, I mean, we're, we're, this has been a, this whole project has been a labor of love, but you know, I think it's like 17,000 posts. I spent, I did this for like the first four years with like 200 followers. Um, but really getting to know Paul was the biggest thing in my, was one of the biggest moments of my life. And, um, you know, and, and I, I really want to still honor him through this page because, it, you know, he liked this, he liked stuff he would send me, you know, articles of stuff he liked. Um, just, he was very kind to me when he didn't really need to be. He added me to a Christmas card list, which is funny that we're both Jews. Um, but, you know, the more I've learned about him, the more I just... I love his I love his subversion. I love his kindness to strangers, and I'm just trying to do my part to honor him. We're going to be doing a live Zoom on the 23rd of September. I'm not sure what time yet, and then we're going to be doing like a two-part episode on the podcast with all the submissions and maybe some short interviews. So please, uh, if you want to submit that, it's vintage annals archive at Gmail, two ends in annals annals, um, and I'm looking for like uh, video files, um, MOV files, things I can download. Uh, just not YouTube or anything, because I need to be able to download it. And I'm asking people to keep it. You know, he was subversive. You can keep it subversive, but it's got to honor him. Some people have already <laughs> asked me if they could do things that I'm just like, why would you want to do that? So it's really about honoring Paul. Um, yet, you know, yet it could get a little, you know, he, he, he got dark. He was subversive. He can get a little bit of that, but I'm not going to get into any of the tabloid bullshit. All right. Until next week. Thank you. He thought and different.